to the Red Light Report. Your number one source for all things red light therapy. Where you will learn how to optimize your health, wellness, and longevity with the power of photobiomodulation. I'm your host, Dr. Mike Belkowski. Hi there, everybody. Thanks for joining me on another episode of the Red Light Report. Appreciate every single one of you for tuning in, whether it's on a weekly basis or if you're just popping in to check out an episode here and there. I appreciate every single one of you. And for those who uh, consistently follow this podcast, you know that uh, last week we began a three-part series looking at the impact of light via the eye through a book that was produced in the 1970s. And as, as you know, a lot of the research is from the mid-1900s, early 1900s, and even late 1800s. But that information is so profound, I felt the need to do this three-part series. And it's through a book by a German ophthalmologist from Germany, Fritz Hallwich. And for those who are just popping in for the first time and didn't listen to the previous episode... I'm gathering this information and I'm relaying it to you guys from a book called The Influence of Ocular Light Perception on Metabolism in Man and an Animal. And if you didn't listen to last week's episode, I highly, highly recommend it because, again, it goes into some, I would say, groundbreaking. But again, this information is from 100 years ago, almost uh, 50, 60, 70 years plus. And... Again, I highly recommend you go back because we went through about the first third of this book where we really dig into the foundation of light and its role and impact on our overall health, but again, via the eye. And it's not from our vision that we typically associate our eyes with, but it's through this secondary mechanism or secondary pathway that Fritz Hallwich coined the energetic pathway of the visual organ. Of course, we have the visual pathway that we're all used to, how we see vision, of course. But then this energetic pathway is how light really impacts our health for better or for worse. It's through this energetic pathway. In that first episode from last week, we went over some foundational information presented by Fritz Hallwich. And then we also looked at a chapter on the energetic portion of the optic nerve, We looked at light in the pineal gland, and then light and growth. In today's episode, we're going to carry on, in today's part two of a three-part series, we're going to look at light and body temperature, light and kidney function, light and blood count, and then light and metabolic function. So, a lot of information to cover in today's episode. And just like I prefaced with last week's episode, essentially, I can't memorize or even really summarize this type of information. So it is coming straight from the book. Again, this is research from years and years ago. 
and it still blows my mind that this type of information isn't well known. If not for the, in the public's eye, even just in the health community, there's a dearth, a lack of knowledge that light plays this type of an impact through our eyes. So I'm really excited to be able to present this information. I hope you guys are taking a lot of take-home points from these episodes because the more that you hear this type of information, the more you'll have an appreciation for light and your lighting environment because, of course, darkness is the absence of light. Hence, circadian rhythms, or as we'll see in the instance of blind people, their eyes can't get that the visual light or the energetic pathway of light, they do have metabolic, physiological, biological consequences. And so that's where a lot of the research comes into play is comparing blind people to those with normal eyesight. And then a last point I want to make, especially for those who listened to last week's episode, you're going to continue to see or or pick up on repetition, because we're going to continue to look through different body systems. Again, today, light and body temperature, we're going to look at the kidney, and so on and so forth. So we're going to be looking at different aspects of health, but we're going to continue to see similar results. So it may, in a way, get redundant, but it shouldn't, because again, we're talking about different physiological systems in the body, and the fact that they have similar results via light, via the eye. So keep in mind, this is all looking at the impact of light through your eye and the way that there's the trickle-down effect or there's those uh, positive or negative feedback mechanisms that lead to results in the blood or it leads to results and uh, consequences in the kidney function and it leads to consequences in, in growth and in sleep and in hormone production, so on and so forth. So That's the whole point of this book, remember, is for Fritz Hallwich to present research and irrefutably demonstrate that light through your eye essentially impacts almost all aspects of our health. So just keep that in mind as we go forward. And without further ado, let's continue on and begin this episode with light and body temperature. So when we speak about human body temperature, it must be understood that all parts of the body do not have the same temperature. Rather, there exists a complicated spatial temperature field, which is also subject to temporal variations or changes with time. The heat produced inside the organism is constantly flowing outward. Thus, for purely physical reasons, a temperature variance occurs between the internal and external parts of the body. In addition, there is a temperature drop in the extremities from proximal to distal so that an axial as well as radial temperature variance exists. And the hypothalamic region in particular is of decisive importance in the regular of temperature. The thermoregulatory centers react to local changes in temperature and perform the function of temperature antennae that are influenced directly by the core temperature and indirectly by skin temperature. Impulses reach the heat center by reflection via the skin's thermoreceptors, the temperature of blood itself, and the direct influence of heat or cold on the cutaneous vessels. So, getting into diurnal rhythm of body temperature in in adults. And keep in mind, whenever I say diurnal rhythm, 
That's basically saying circadian rhythm. It's the change in uh, dark light environment, dark light contrast. So again, we're going to look at diurnal rhythm or circadian rhythm of body temperature in adults. And so the first studies concerning body temperature changes throughout the day were done by Jurgensen. and this is in 1873. And according to his investigations, maximal temperature occurs between 5 p.m. and 8 p.m. Minimum temperatures between 2 a.m. and 6 a.m. So Jurgensen found the average difference between minimal and maximum to be 1 degree centigrade. Leibermeister in 1875 soon established that this temperature change is essentially independent of external factors such as activity, diet, and sleep. And by means of maximum elimination of muscular activity, Johansson, and this is in 1898, obtained a substantial reduction in, but not a complete elimination of, the daily fluctuation in temperature. On the basis of this, he concluded that the cause of diurnal nocturnal rhythm, or circadian rhythm, was to be found in the physical work and exercise associated with the day and the rest associated with night. And according to Hormon in 1898, nocturnal rest, as well as lack of food intake, causes a drop in temperature. Hence, we see Jurgensen found that drop in temperature between 2 and 6 a.m. because of lack of activity, lack of food. And Hormon explained the absence of temperature fluctuations in a stuporous patient as a result of elimination of external stimuli, especially light. Going on, looking at diurnal rhythm of body temperature in infants, in the first to third weeks of life, body temperature does not exhibit any day-night difference. The daytime levels does not rise until about the fifth to tenth week of life. However, the infants do not show a clear indication of a day-night periodicity until the tenth to 16th week, at which time there was an increase in the daytime figures and also a decrease in the nighttime temperature. So pretty interesting as infants are born and continue life for the first several months that their body temperature does not respond to a circadian rhythm for the first three weeks of life. And their daytime level does not rise until the second or third month. Even up into four months, the infants don't show any type of circadian rhythm, which is probably why they're keeping these new parents up all hours of the morning because the infants, they don't have a circadian rhythm. So it's very interesting just to see the dynamic of light from an infant's perspective through their first you know, three, four, five, six months of life to where eventually by the fourth month, there is an increase in daytime body temperature and there is a drop in nighttime body temperature. So pretty interesting. It takes about four months for that to come into play. And then moving on, disturbances in temperature rhythm caused by changes in diurnal rhythm. What happens when the circadian rhythm changes and how does that disturb body temperature? Well, numerous studies have been conducted on the reaction of body temperature when the normal 24-hour activity rhythm is changed. By means of electric registration of temperature, Benedict and Snell, in 1902, monitored the rectal temperature of a night worker. For 12 nights, they took a reading every four minutes and on the last day during the day as well. 
In spite of certain irregularities, the studies clearly show that the basic outline of the temperature curve is no way influenced by the reversal of light pattern. Benedict repeated the experiments with a night watchman who had been following a reversed life pattern for eight years without interruption, finding the same result. There was no sign of any adaptation to this reversed sleep-waking rhythm. So that is pretty interesting. The point being, even if you are a night shift worker, your body temperature is still in sync with the quote-unquote normal circadian rhythm, meaning, again, your, your highest body temperature is going to be in the evening 5 to 8 p.m. and lowest 2 to 6 a.m., and that does not change if you are a night shift worker. Moving on, Hildebrandt's opinion in 1973 on the reversal of life pattern that in shift work only a few functions are able to adapt themselves to this reversal. He found that body temperature continues to reach a maximum during the day and a minimum during the night. So kind of what I just reviewed there, that while other physiological mechanisms may adapt to light or to, to the night shift work specifically, body temperature does not. Mills and Stanbury in 1952 found in the case of five experimental subjects kept in a basement that even with an artificial sleep-waking rhythm of 12 hours, the 24-hour body temperature rhythm remained constant. So again, that, that um, interesting uh, research by sticking people in a basement, again, just corroborating what we already just reviewed, that altering the sleep-wake cycle, altering your day work to night shift work does not alter body temperature. Kind of interesting. And just wrapping up the last section here in light and body temperature, we'll briefly look at interruptions in temperature rhythm in the blind. And so as early as 1934, Jors observed four virtually blind persons during a one-day confinement to darkness. In two cases, he noted a suspension of temperature rhythm and in the other two, a distinctly altered rhythm. He concluded that even in the case of the blind, light is one factor among others to which we must ascribe an influence on the 24-hour periodicity of temperature regulation. And so in summary, we can say that human body temperature reaches a high point in the course of the day and during the night sinks to a low point. This temperature rhythm, however, is subject to slight individual variations. When all exterior time indicators are experimentally eliminated, independent periods of individual body functions appear which differ in length and can be modified by numerous external influences. In this connection, temperature rhythm is a relatively constant factor. Which is pretty interesting because, as you heard in the previous episode and as you're going to hear with these subsequent subjects and chapters, light and the circadian rhythm really does alter or have consequences for different biology or physiology, whatever you want to call it, yet body temperature remains constant. And outside of this book, I'd be curious to see what subsequent research looks at and what the reason would be. But pretty interesting, regardless. I mean, we're going to present all the information here about light, whether it causes an effect or not. And it is just interesting to keep in mind that your body temperature, again, peaks in the evening and is lowest 2 to 6 a.m. 
and apparently shift work, different light environments, your sleep behaviors doesn't seem to affect your body temperature. So pretty interesting. And the next topic we'll dive into here is light and kidney function. And so we're going to jump into water balance and the effect that plays with with kidney function. So on a wall relief in Egypt, Fuchs in 1965 discovered a blind harpist with a puffy face and bloated habitus. In other words, with signs of a disturbed water balance. If the inducing influence of light is lacking, as is the case with the blind, a modification of water balance occurs. For someone with sight, normal diuresis is distinguished by a small amount of urine excreted nocturnally with a high specific gravity. And by high specific gravity, that means dehydrated or has a lot of color. So again, for someone with sight, normal diuresis is distinguished by a small amount of urine excreted nocturnally with a high specific gravity and by a large amount excreted during the day with a low specific gravity. So again, a larger amount with a lower specific gravity, meaning the urine is more clear, you're more hydrated. However, in the blind, with a modification of water balance in the blind person causes us to conclude that he experiences reduced efficiency of the antidiuretic pituitary hormone, which is normally active at night. This becomes especially apparent when the water balance is subjected to stress by Volhard's water loading test or when, in addition, the antidiuretic hormone of the posterior pituitary lobe is injected. Tests of 67 blind persons compared to 20 persons with normal sight revealed that the blind have a lesser amount of diural urine, whereas the amount of excreted nocturnally increases in the form of nocturia. The totally blind, therefore, very often display a puffy appearance and bloated habitus. So, essentially, those that are blind and thus not receiving the information from light they're going to be more likely to retain water, hence that puffy appearance. And since they're not getting the light signals, which would be then through the energetic pathway passed down to their pituitary gland, they're having issues with their antidiuretic pituitary hormone, which is supposed to be active at night, but in blind people, it's not. Antidiuretic meaning, like coffee would make you go to the bathroom. Antidiuretic meaning not go to the bathroom. So in blind people, their antidiuretic hormone is not working as it should. So they're going to the bathroom during the evening more than a normal person, yet they're retaining more water overall, hence the puffy appearance. And so in order to eliminate exogenic factors, Hallwich also performed the Volhard water test on patients who for all practical purposes, had been blind for years as a result of cataracts of both eyes. Just as in the previous case of the blind, the amount of urine was also less during the day, whereas nocturnal excretion was increased in the form of nocturia. Post-operatively, after removal of the cataracts and restoration of light's entry into the eye, the Volhard water test on these same patients showed normal results. The major amount of water administered was excreted during the day and nocturnal excretion fell to normal levels. And you can just see in pictures in, in this book, the picture of before and after of a patient that had bilateral 
cataracts in their eyes, meaning both sides. And you see the before picture, very puffy. The post-operative restoration where he's getting light, normal light entry into the eye, much less puffy. Uh, you can see more form, more bone in his face, whereas the, the preoperative, again, very puffy, no definition. And that's just simply by restoring light to the energetic pathway of the eye. So pretty darn cool. Uh, moving on. Laban and Tredre in 1964 likewise noted nocturia, meaning nighttime bathrooms or going to the bathroom in, at night, in 27 totally blind persons and, in addition, a disturbance in their rhythm of excreting sodium and chloride. In another piece of research, Jendralski in 1951 reports on his single observation of a case of diabetes insipidus in a person blind as a result of cataracts on both eyes. After the cataracts were removed and the normal entry of light into the eyes was restored, water excretion became normal. So there we have multiple pieces of research where people had bilateral cataracts, meaning it stopped their eyes, especially the energetic portion from receiving the information it should, when the cataracts were removed, when that obstruction of the light down the energetic pathway was removed and light was restored, things normalized quickly. Nothing else was done. No other lifestyle habits, sleep, yada, yada, yada. It was simply allowing light to enter the energetic pathway of the eye. Okay, moving on to electrolyte balance, another function of the kidney. Mills, in 1964, reports on a 105-day-long confinement in a cave in constant darkness. The speleologist used a watch and spoke once a day with someone outside. Thus, he was not completely isolated from external influences, such as social indicators of time. The only thing that was completely eliminated was the physiological day-night sequence in the form of an alternation between light and darkness. A sleep-waking rhythm of somewhat more than 24 hours ensued. Potassium excretion in the urine followed this rhythm. The rhythm of urinary excretion of sodium and chloride remained constant for a period of over two months, but then became completely irregular. However, within three days after the termination of this experiment in constant darkness, all rhythms became normal again. So, quite an extreme um, experiment. I mean, 105 day long, so over three months in a cave. And most of the electrolytes remained normal until the very last little bit. And so it took quite a while for the electrolytes to fall out of balance. But even with that being said, over three months in complete darkness, it only took three days for all rhythms to become normal again. So pretty, pretty interesting. Uh, moving on here. Simon Hoff's study in 1968 agrees with Laban and Treadre's findings that when light-dark perception is present, a normal excretory rhythm is maintained. Upon the incidence of total blindness, the rhythms were altered or completely missing. In the case of congenital amaurosis, a complete reversal of the cycle occurred. And congenital amaurosis, for those who don't know, is a rare inherited eye disease that appears at birth or in the first few months of light. Again, just speaking on the influence of light or lack thereof, if someone is blind, they are going to have a complete altered or missing rhythm 
relative to electrolyte balance. And in the case of congenital amaurosis, the reversal of the cycle occurred. Moving on, Hallwich, in studying 360 visually impaired patients, 220 of them virtually blind, in comparison with 50 persons with normal vision, found alterations in the electrolyte balance in the form of an adrenal cortical insufficiency, meaning lowered amounts of sodium, chloride, and inorganic phosphate, and a slightly increased potassium level appeared in the serum. The same alterations were found in 110 cataract patients who were virtually blind before surgery. However, post-operatively, after restoration of lights entry into the eye, electrolyte balance values became normal in the serum as well as the urine. So just, again, another feather in the cap of lack of light in the form of cataracts causing some issue in electrolyte balance. But when the lights restored, electrolyte balance became normal. In 1969, Krieger studied circadian periodicity or circadian rhythm of steroids and electrolytes under differing light conditions. Urine samples were collected at four-hour intervals from two healthy subjects who were hospitalized for several weeks in order to determine the effect on electrolyte excretion of a normal light day rhythm of a normal day with constant light and of an inverted sleep rhythm with constant light. So I'll repeat that again because they went through three various stages, if you will. Again, the first one was normal light day rhythm, normal day with constant light, and then inverted sleep with constant light. And so the authors discovered a weak correlation between electrolyte excretion and periods of sleep. In the experiment with the inverted sleep pattern, the rhythm of potassium excretion showed a distinctively irregular pattern in contrast to that of a normal day with constant light. Thus, sleeping conditions appear to have a stronger effect on circadian rhythm than periods of darkness. This podcast was brought to you by the Longev Revive Cream. If you haven't heard of this cream before, go back and listen to the podcast interview with David Horneck, one of the people that helped create this amazing cream. The cream is specifically developed to enhance red light therapy treatment sessions. And not only that, but improve vibrational healing from the frequencies of full spectrum sunlight. The Revive includes special ingredients such as photodynamic amino acids, which helps convert UV light to red light. It increases production of this thing called fibronectin, which is said to be the holy grail of anti-aging. And then there's astaxanthin, which has been shown in clinical studies to increase skin moisture, moisture retention, and elasticity. There's turmeric, which contains an antioxidant, anti-inflammatory, and antimicrobial properties. There's copper peptides, which also has antioxidant, anti-inflammatory effects. C60 has high antioxidant power to prevent skin aging, 172 times more than vitamin C. And then there's also geranium rose, shungite, humic acids, and most of these ingredients are organic and they're all high, high quality. So if you want to check this cream out, go to longev.com, that's L-O-N-G-E-V-V.com, or you can also find it on biolite.shop, that's biolite.shop. So again, this is something to be aware of if you work late night shifts or, you know, the graveyard shifts in one form or another, it wreaks havoc on your circadian rhythm. And we could have a whole other podcast about circadian rhythm and the impacts on health. 
But the research done here by Krieger showed that if you have an inverted sleep pattern, that wreaks more havoc on your circadian rhythm than periods of darkness. Okay, so that was the end of light and kidney function. Now we're going to move on to light and blood count. And while that may seem a little blasé or boring, there is quite a few things here, quite a few pieces of research we're going to cover that's going to demonstrate, again, how light impacts health and how light impacts different aspects of blood. And so the bloodstream serves as the transmitting agent to and from the cells and organs. Furthermore, the blood carries out the exchange of hormones and other substances regulating the organs and cell function. The composition of blood is subject to constant change even under normal circumstances. It also follows from the fact that blood is involved so closely with the whole organism that a change in blood count accompanies almost all ailments and abnormalities of the organism. I'll say that last sentence again because we're going over light and blood count. It also follows from the fact that blood is involved so closely with the whole organism that a change in blood count accompanies almost all ailments and abnormalities of the organism. So let's look at red blood cell count. And so this goes on to say that there is still uncertainty concerning the processes that contribute to the constant maintenance of normal cell counts in the peripheral blood. The role of light in the formation of blood is not clearly evaluated in the relevant literature and is frequently even strictly denied. Most studies merely serve the purpose of a broad orientation and are so heterogeneous that a generally valid statement is scarcely possible. To some extent, older experimental methods, which do not always utilize the results of recent innovations, are involved here. And so, Haberlein, in 1923, traced the development of hemoglobin content in the blood of ailing urban children who were exposed to the influence of the North Sea climate. The rise in the curve of their progress chart correlates clearly with the length of daily exposure to sunlight. Like Isaacson in 1925, Haberlin found the highest hemoglobin levels in the sunny spring and summer months and the lowest levels in the months of November and December with their dearth of sunshine. He explained this by pointing out that the body receives more chemically active radiation by the sea due to the increased reflection of sunshine, just as it does in the high mountains due to thinner layer of air. And moving on here, upon keeping five dogs in constant darkness for nine months, Miles and Lawrence in 1926 discovered an initial fall in hemoglobin and urethrocyte levels with the subsequent fluctuations leveling off as subnormal levels. In humans, hemoglobin content together with hematocrit falls markedly from 7 a.m. until after midnight. So the highest point is 7 a.m. and then falls until midnight. In the course of a year, the author found evidence for an increase in blood parameters during the summer. So again, there seems to be some seasonal fluctuation, which would point towards more sunlight. And then, of course, fluctuation during the day. It's highest when you wake up and continues to fall until midnight. A clear contrast to the apparently slight reactive behavior of the blood count of nocturnal rats and mice is offered by diurnal birds. Seven-week-old roosters were kept in a darkened room for 10 weeks during the summer months. The result was pronounced 
anemia. They had pale combs and leg skin, general loss of tone, reduction of uh, hemoglobin by half. And the eyelids of 20 roosters were subsequently sutured. The eyelids of 10 were left open. Both groups, the experimental and control birds, were exposed to sunlight for five days, for two hours in the morning and two hours in the afternoon, and hemoglobin levels were then examined. The following picture emerged. Light hastened the regeneration of red blood cells when the lids were open, but not when they were sewn shut. The varying behavior of hemoglobin levels in the two groups demonstrates that the full regenerative effect of light becomes active only when it enters the eye. These experiments confirm Heilmeier's view in 1942. The old common sense belief that sunlight promotes the production of blood appears clearly in regeneration experiments, i.e. when a higher efficiency than usual is demanded of the bone marrow. So now we'll move on from red blood cells to white blood cell count. And of course, keeping in mind white blood cells having to do with immunity and healing, fighting infections and such. When mice were exposed to short, very intensive photostimuli, uh, 5,000 lux of white light, two researchers in 1966 observed, along with expected reduction in uh, eosinophils, white blood cells, and just a quick recap because we're going to have a lot more information about eosinophils, but they are a variety of white blood cells and one of the immune system components responsible for combating multicellular parasites and certain infections in vertebrates. So just keep that in mind whenever we're talking about eosinophils uh, going forward here. But again, when white mice were exposed to short, very intensive photostimuli, along with a decrease in eosinophils, altered relations between neutrophils and lymphocytes to the advantage of the latter. Two weeks of darkness led to a depression of the white blood corpuscles. The effect of strong light after darkness brought the values of the white blood cell count back to normal level. The authors attribute this exclusively to the effect of ocular perception of light. So again, another demonstration of what can go awry when stuck in darkness for long periods of time, the, the white blood cell count, which is your immune system, falls, but then when light is restored, it comes back to normal levels. So again, like I said in the beginning here, a lot of repetitive information, but just again, different aspects of biology. And Continuing earlier studies on fluctuations of various hormonal and metabolic parameters, Hallwich investigated, and this is 1973, Hallwich investigated diurnal fluctuations, circadian rhythm fluctuations, in blood count as related to the perception of light on the part of the blind and of control subjects with normal sight. Blind people whose perception of light was totally lacking or sharply reduced exhibited a diurnal rhythm which deviated from the norm. Furthermore, these authors were the first to point out that the absolute number of leukocytes, another type of white blood cell, the absolute number of leukocytes in the practically blind is lowered in a most significant fashion. In the differential blood count, the number of leukocytes and neutrophils in the blind was also reduced. Reticulocytes and hematocrit value behaved the same as for leukocytes. All diurnal values of the blood count were lower than in the case of those with normal sight. Studies of cataract patients before, um, practically blind, and after, meaning their sight was restored, surgery yielded the same results. 
the absence of photostimulation of the eye leads to reduced pituitary activity due to a secondary insufficiency of the adrenal cortex. This, in turn, causes a decrease in leukocytes and a shift in the differential blood count. So again, if you're blind, white blood cell counts are lowered, and or if you have cataracts, they're lowered. If your vision is restored, light can be introduced into the energetic pathway of the eye, then your white blood count is normalized. And now moving on to thrombocytes, which are platelets. In cataract patients with diminished ocular perception of light due to opaque lenses or opaque lenses, the abnormal matutinal rise in thrombocytes between 8 and 11 a.m. becomes normal after surgery. After free passage of light to the interior of the eye was restored, thrombocytes showed a regular decline between 8 and 11 a.m., just as in those with normal sight. Further, a rise in the absolute thrombocyte count was exhibited post-operatively after restoration of normal ocular perception of light. With nutritional and environmental conditions remaining constant, post-operative variations in thrombocyte count in the same test person can only be attributed to the restored passage of light to the retina. So virtually the same thing as we saw with white blood cells, but now also with thrombocytes. Light was blocked, thrombocytes were down or, or irregular. When the cataracts were removed, light was restored, and thus thrombocytes were also normalized. The authors were also able to demonstrate the reverse process in the behavior of thrombocyte count in a patient who became acutely blind. In the study, a 67-year-old woman had lost the sight of one eye as a child in an accident while playing and lost sight in the other eye due to an intraocular infection. As a consequence, she was practically blind. The thrombocyte count was taken beginning on the day she became blind and thrombocyte values consistently lower than normal were found. After four weeks, the values attained the level of thrombocytopenic values characteristic for the blind. It only took four weeks. This observation reveals the significance of intact ocular perception of light on thrombocyte fluctuations. If photostimuli are absent, then apparently there is a lack of stimulation to activate the adrenal cortex, which deals with thrombocytes. And now carrying on to another aspect of blood cells, we're going to look at eosinophilic blood cells. Carrying on here, after making studies of night nurses, Appel discovered that it was the sunrise and not the act of awakening which followed by a fall in eosinophil count, independently of the rhythm of physical activity. Further research showed that the earlier the sun rose, the earlier the fall in the number of eosinophils occurred. From these results of his research, Appel concluded that light has the decisive influence of the 24-hour rhythm of eosinophils. And as proven by a multitude of experiments on the blind by Hallwich in the 60s, he noted that the transition between sleep and waking does not have any substantial influence on the matutinal fall of eosinophil cells. Rather, it is the ocular perception of light which is responsible for this. So just like Appel found, it wasn't the act of waking up that made the difference. It was the sunrise, the light that affected eosinophils. Moving on, the authors conclude 
that the diurnal fluctuation in eosinophil count is dependent on the fluctuation of the macular region of the retina and thus can be used to test macula function. This assumption was corroborated by the results of studies of diseases of the optic nerves. This was also applied to those cases in which there were severely reduced vision and appreciable central scotoma. The absence of the eosinopenic reaction, meaning lowered levels of eosinophils, in macula degeneration when vision is good and central scotoma is slight, supports the view that the optic and autonomic functions of the eye are separate as postulated by Hallwich in his hypothesis of an energetic portion of the optic system. And this was in 1948. So what Hallwich is purporting once again is that when vision is good, yet light can't make it to the energetic pathway, there will be negative consequences. And in this case, there is no reaction to eosinophils, even though there is good vision. Light can't make it down the energetic pathway. He's saying that clearly demonstrates there is a difference between vision and a difference between autonomic functions. You can have vision, but if your light isn't making it to the energetic pathway, and in this example, there's macula degeneration that's blocking light to the energetic pathway, yet there's still good vision. And the fact that there's good vision and no reaction with the eosinophils demonstrates that while you can still have good vision, you can still have negative consequences when there isn't light making it to the energetic portion. And so moving on here, even though other exogenic stimuli function as synchronizing factors in the movement of eosinophils, there is no doubt that ocular photostimuli play the dominant role. This emerges from studies already cited. In addition, intensive ocular photostimuli can elicit stress reactions. They cause, among other things, an increase in the activity of the adrenal cortex. As hormone secretion increases in the blood, the eosinophil drops off. And in detailed series of experiments by Hallwich, again, in, in mostly in the 1960s, the presence of a sinusoid eosinophil movement corresponding to the physiological light-darkness rhythm was established in persons with normal sight. So it's going up and down, up and down, just like a light wave. However, this rhythm is no longer ascertainable in 300 blind test subjects. If the behavior of eosinophilic movement is observed in patients blinded by cataracts before and after removal of the opaque or opaque lenses, then preoperatively, only a faint or virtually non-existent eosinophil drop can be traced. However, postoperatively, normal physiological behavior is restored. So, again, when you have those opaque cataracts, you're not seeing that sinusoid movement that you do with normal sight. When the cataracts are removed, light is restored. You go from a, basically a flat line to that normalized sinusoid pattern of the eosinophils. So, you know, with all that being said, that's that's all the excitement I have to bring, or I should say Hallwich has to bring, relative to light and, and blood count. But some pretty, pretty, I mean, just like previous chapters, pretty profound impacts of light, but on blood, on red blood cells, on white blood cells. And of course, there's downstream effects um, or consequences when, when those occur, when you have low red blood cell count and low white blood cell count. So just keeping in mind, you know, again, light impacting 
all aspects of life. Blood is no different. What's, what's kind of, I don't want to say ironic, but interesting, with red light therapy specifically, we know that red light therapy works, both red and near-infrared light works, because it's stimulating, it's exciting, it's altering the health and the function of mitochondria. And mitochondria are in every single cell in the body except red blood cells. So kind of interesting that red light therapy can't directly affect red blood cells. But here, uh, it clearly demonstrates that light can. So pretty cool to present Hallwich's information there, for better or for worse. A lot of it comes down to circadian rhythm. You can impact your, your red blood cell count or white blood cell count as well. But I digress. Moving on to the last section of today's episode, we're going to look at light and metabolic functions. And so we're going to start with lipid metabolism. In comparative experiments with normal-sided and enucleated rats, again, enucleated, the entire eyeball is taken out. So again, in comparative experiments with normal-sided and enucleated rats under natural conditions of light and darkness, Hallwich in 1966 demonstrated in the rats with normal sight a 60% increase in free fatty acids paralleling an increase in daylight, whereas enucleated rats under the same conditions of light, heat, and diet did not reveal any changes in the free fatty acids in their serum. Neither did the control animals kept in darkness. So right off the bat there, light making an impact on free fatty acids. If your eye is removed or you're kept in darkness, you're going to see altered levels of your free fatty acids. Uh, Moving on, similar experiments on rabbits who had been subjected to a five-day-long period of darkness preceding the test showed comparable results. And then in another study by Hallwich in 1966, he further studied the effect of light stress on the metabolism of free fatty acids, attempting to determine to what degree the effect of stress-inducing photostimuli on fat metabolism proceeds via the eye. Exposed to flicker light as well as to regular light, animals with normal sight displayed an increase in free fatty acids. In rats and rabbits, normal daylight and artificial light affect fat metabolism by increasing the free fatty acids in the serum. These effects depend, however, on intact ocular perception of light. So you can't have your eyeballs removed and you can't be stuck in a cave or a basement for long periods of time. Another study showed that persons with impaired vision demonstrated a fat metabolism behavior located between that of the blind and normal sighted. So not great vision, but not legally blind, apparently. Plasma concentration of free fatty acids is regulated by a large number of nutritive and nervous factors. But here, too, the hormones that are dependent on the diencephalic pituitary system, meaning the adrenaline, somatotropic hormone, thyrotropin, thyroid, and corticosteroids, again, they appear as direct or indirect lipolytic factors. Thus, the connection with the energetic portion of the optic pathway is once again established. And there's only a small section here on protein metabolism, but it states, At present, there are no data on the diurnal rhythm of blood protein content in the blind. Hallwich, in 1971, did find a change in protein metabolism in the blind in the form of a negative nitrogen balance accompanied by increased protein metabolism. 
and this showed up as lowered serum protein values, a rise in the rest nitrogen, uric acid, and creatinine in the serum. In cataract patients, the nitrogen balance became normal after surgery. So still, there's clearly a distinct change when light is restored to the energetic pathway in those that had cataracts, their nitrogen balance was restored. Moving quickly on to liver metabolism, in 1935, Forsgren studied in detail the liver's role as the central controlling organ for intermediary metabolism. Along with its dominant role in carbohydrate metabolism, the liver also performs important tasks in amino acid and nitrogen metabolism, in serum protein synthesis, lipid metabolism, enzyme synthesis, detoxification, and cholaresis. It would be too time-consuming to describe all the specific regulatory mechanisms and diurnal rhythms, but those metabolic activities dependent on light should be mentioned. That was kind of a laundry list of just some of the things that the liver has to accomplish on a daily basis for you to, <laughs> to stay healthy. In 1966, moving on with liver metabolism, Hallwich tested the sensitivity of white mice to acetonitrile under normal and abnormal diurnal rhythms in light darkness conditions. Acetonitrile, this is kind of interesting, it has many uses, including as a solvent for spinning fibers and in lithium batteries. It is primarily found in air from automobile exhaust and manufacturing facilities. Needless to say, with that description, acetonitrile is essentially a poison. So they were using a poison with these mice to see how their, their liver would detoxify or, or get rid of that poison. So again, Hallwich tested the sensitivity of white mice to acetonitrile under normal and abnormal diurnal rhythms in light darkness conditions. Further series of experiments with normal-sided and enucleated mice dealt with the influence of constant light as well as of diurnal periodicity on lethality. And lethality, of course, dealing with the poison. So lethality or death increased significantly when light perception via the energetic portion of the optic pathway was eliminated by darkness or enucleation. A disturbance of the light-darkness rhythm also influenced sensitivity to acetonitrile depending on the duration of the disturbance. Furthermore, there were fluctuations in toxicity according to the time of day with the lowest degree of lethality occurring during the afternoon with the experimental animals being exposed to daylight for eight hours. So, pretty clear demonstration of the impact on liver metabolism. Again, if you're blind or enucleated, there's a significant increase in lethality and having the lowest degree of lethality occurring during the afternoon when you've been exposed to a lot of light. So pretty interesting stuff there as well. And then moving on to blood sugar. Numerous studies attest to the fact that light induces carbohydrate metabolism. Diurnal fluctuations in carbohydrate metabolism which are related to the periodic change between light and darkness, can be observed. In 1855, Moleschott thought he could prove that animals in light produce more carbonic acid than they do in darkness. Blind animals also were supposed to produce less carbon dioxide in darkness than in light. Grafenberger's research in 1893 proceeded from the fact that agricultural animals are easier to fatten in dark places than they are kept in very bright areas. 
I mean, think about that. I'll say, I'll say it again. This research proceeded from the fact that agricultural animals are easier to fatten in dark places than when they are kept in very bright areas. Just think big ag versus your local farm. He discovered that the withdrawal of light caused production of more body fat without, however, having any effect on the synthesis of liver glycogen. The first finding became a well-known fact. The second can probably be attributed to the inadequate research methods of that time. So moving forward, in 1929, a researcher Gijon cleared up this matter by keeping healthy rabbits in complete darkness and then testing their blood sugar level after glucose and levulose tolerance tests. When you compare the nitrogen and carbon content of the blood, it became clear that the absence of light led to an abnormality in sugar assimilation, which proceeded normally only in the presence of light. Jones in 1934 found that blood sugar levels were higher in four rabbits whose eyes were kept closed by clamps for three days than in animals who had been kept in the normal diurnal rhythms of light and darkness. More recent experiments in 1967 confirmed Jor's findings. After light's entry into the eyes had been eliminated, there is, first of all, a rise in blood sugar level until the fourth day, followed by an abrupt and then later gradual fall to subnormal hypoglycemic levels. So clearly, there is clearly an impact on light and blood sugar levels, which should be kind of eye-popping and ear-popping, I should say, to know because of, of course, the rampant increase in type 2 diabetes, obesity, you know, metabolic disease, so on and so forth. There's clearly a distinction between getting light or not getting light and the ramifications of that. So just like in the research here of the agricultural animals, kept in darkness to add fat. And that makes sense because if you're in a basement all day, if you're inside an office building all day and you're not getting sunlight, that's one contributing factor to your blood glucose levels not being normal. And apparently according to this research, if you're not getting exposed to your consistent daylight, then your body's not able to assimilate, utilize, synthesize the glucose in your blood. Thus, if it's not used or synthesized properly, it's going to be stored as fat. So some pretty big take-home points with, with light and, and blood sugar. And then clearly, as George found with, with the rabbits, if the eye is not receiving the light to the energetic portion of the eye, almost immediately the blood glucose levels go awry. But when light is restored, it's normalized. So that's why I said towards the end of... Uh, the previous episode, that you need to reconsider your your usage of sunglasses. And again, this isn't medical advice, but just listening to the information that I'm presenting, it should make sense now that sunglasses shouldn't be used as often as they are. Because when you're blocking your eye from the energetic nutrition, the energetic information from the sunlight, you're clearly wreaking havoc on different metabolic functions. And in this case, it can do a doozy on your blood glucose. And so then lastly, moving on to insulin. As early as 
1950, Hallwich had conducted a functional test of carbohydrate balance on blind subjects based on a method developed by Staub and Trogott, which I'm sure I'm butchering those names, but... And according to Hallwich, the results of both tolerance tests indicate a connection between blindness and a dysfunction of the hypophyseal portion of blood sugar regulation. Uh, hypophyseal, again, meaning pituitary gland. So blindness or lack of light, I'm sure cataracts would fall in the same category, leading to a dysfunction in the uh, pituitary gland and its role with blood sugar regulation. And so if the behavior of blood sugar in cataract patients is tested before and after surgery, a significant rise in blood sugar from 87.5 milligrams percent to 98.5 milligrams percent is found after surgery under unchanging conditions of diet and environment. The varying results of the Staub Trogot tolerance test seen in the virtually blind state before surgery and in the state of restored sight after surgery can, under the same variable and stationary environmental conditions, serve as further proof that light's entry into the eye has an influence on the regulation of sugar balance. Uh, the last little take-home point or last little tidbit here for this episode is that in view of today's knowledge, the constancy of this metabolic rhythm and the preservation of normal levels are maintained by two interrelated regulatory systems. Alimentary regulation of blood sugar performed principally by hormones of the pancreas and the adrenal glands, and two, Central autonomic regulation, which is influenced by light's entry into the eye and is controlled by the diencephalic pituitary system. Needless to say, a lot of information presented this episode is mind-blowing. It's jaw-dropping. The impacts of, you know, simply getting light, proper, full-spectrum sunlight, not fluorescent lights, not fake lights, full-spectrum sunlight into your eye, into the energetic portion of your visual system. Between last episode and today's episode, I'm hoping that it's starting to kind of percolate with you that there are real consequences to our light environment decisions. Whether it's, do you get normal to sleep, normal to rise, meaning is your circadian rhythm consistent? Are you a night shift worker? Do you spend frequent times inside office building under fake light or in basements or in dark environments on a consistent basis? Uh, some plumbers spend a lot of time underneath houses or, or underneath schools in dark, dark environments. And of course, one day doesn't make a difference. But if you're doing that year in and year out, there's probably going to be some metabolic consequences. And again, everything I'm presenting here, it's not like you have one day or two days or, or a week's worth of quote-unquote bad lighting environment and your health's going to go down the drain. It's one of those slippery slopes that you don't know it's happening until you're presented with health conditions or a diagnosis of a certain disease or cancer or otherwise that you're going to go back in retrospect and see that your light environment was terrible. And so that's just another reason to look at how you live your daily life. How often are you inside your house? How often are you inside your car, inside an office building? Another way to say that is how much time do you spend outside getting sunlight? And again, it's not just for the skin. 
because everything presented in this book is for light through the eye, light through the energetic portion. How much of that are you getting? And so that's kind of the take-home point. I know this episode's gotten a little long, uh, but just to review, today we covered light and body temperature, light and kidney function, light and blood count, light and metabolic functions. And for part three of this episode, we are going to cover light and thyroid function, light and sexual function, light and adrenal and pituitary function, natural light and artificial fluorescent light, and then light pollution. So we've learned quite a bit the past two episodes. We have a lot more to learn in that third episode. But again, I thank every single one of you if you've listened this far into the episode. I know it can probably get a little dry listening to someone talk, especially with all these pieces of research and scientific terms. But it may be an episode where you want to go back and listen to certain parts multiple times so that you can understand it or or kind of get some take-home points. But regardless, I hope you guys are learning, enjoying, and have been enjoying this three-part series. I'll look forward to presenting the third part in next week's episode. But again, thank you all. Have a wonderful week. Get outside, get some sunshine, not just for the skin, not for that vitamin D synthesis, but for the eye and for that energetic portion. Thanks, guys. Thank you for listening to the Red Light Report. If you like what you heard today, go ahead and leave us a review on iTunes and other podcast platforms to help spread the word so other people can learn about the many health, wellness, and longevity benefits of red light therapy. If you're looking for more educational content, check out our Instagram page at biolight.shop and our YouTube channel, Biolight. I'm Dr. Mike Belkowski, and I'll see you on the next episode.